the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Congressman Stephen Finger Lookin' Cohen. You may remember him from his uh, KFC stunt when uh, Attorney General Barr wouldn't uh, endure his nonsense at a committee hearing. Yeah, that's that's Stephen Cohen. He's so gross. I can't even look at him. He uh, I was don't on, want to see him eat. He was on CNN yesterday talking about uh, preparations for the inauguration. Oh, setting up flags? <laughs> 191,000 flags? That's what they're doing. The military presence there and concerns about the National Guardsmen. No, not whether or not there were enough, but whether or not there was a fifth column action potentially afoot among the guardsmen, you know, because they're white. This morning I was reading about this on the on my t- Twitter account, I guess, and people were reminding people of Anwar Sadat and Indira Gandhi who were killed by her own their own people. Um, you know, I was thinking the guard is 90-some-odd percent, I believe, male, uh, only about 20 percent of white males voted for Biden. You've got to figure that in the Guard, which is predominantly more conservative, and I see that on my social media and we know it, they're probably not more than 25 percent of the people that are there protecting us who voted for Biden. The other 75 percent are in the class that would be uh, the, the large class of folks who might want to uh, uh, do something. And there were military people and police who took oaths to defend the Constitution and to protect and defend who didn't do it, who were in the the insurrection. So it does concern me. Absolutely not, Jim, but, you know, the, you, you draw first. The first circles, people who were for Trump and not for Biden, as far as people who would be within uh, the, the zone of folks who you'd be suspect of. Suspect group is large. A lot of suspects out there. A lot of suspects uh, The 20, among the 25,000 National Guardsmen and how many ever hundreds of thousands more around the country. Those white National Guardsmen who voted for Trump. Uh, there's, you know, you have to start out from the premise they're suspected assassins. Yeah, they're expecting a possible insider threat. Major General William Walker from Chicago, Leo High School, said they're going to vet them on the way in and vet them on the way out. The FBI is part of it. The Secret Service is part of it. And and once they are uh, certain that the, there's no insider threat, then that uh, soldier, guardsman or airman uh, is given a credential. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of Unjust, Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. So um, the um, the idea that you uh, draw concentric circles around uh, the National Guard contingent there, and you, let's see, white, Trump voter, um, that's the suspect group in terms of some sort of uh, – uh, uh, 
a threat to public safety, threat to the Biden presidency and President Biden himself, according to Stephen Cohen. He's very concerned about this. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing my best to be as charitable as possible here. Um, the, the threat environment, just as we understand it from public reporting, is pretty significant. And law enforcement agencies around the country are prepped for some sort of events to occur today, tomorrow, the days after. Um, and so that can lead to a state of paranoia. And I understand it. And it's not necessarily um, in, inadvisable to be vigilant. Nevertheless, what the congressman articulated here is nothing short of bigotry. Uh, I don't see any way to describe it other than that. I mean, just just to take his figures alone, assuming he's just not babbling off the top of his head. The 20 percent figure doesn't make any sense if you're talking about voters. According to the exit polling, 38 percent of white males and 44 percent of white females voted for Joe Biden. So he's not talking about the voting population. It's more egregious than that. He's talking about the entire adult population of a particular complexion. And that particular complexion is what renders them suspect. Um, it's not only an insult to guardsmen, servicemen generally, who take a note to the Constitution, but millions of law-abiding adults. It is, however, the ineluctable logic of whiteness. This is this vogue pseudo-academic theory that's prevalent on the left, which presupposes that whiteness is, pre is prevalent in every sector of society, from the entertainment industry to fashion to pedagogy to culinary arts. And it is not an indicator of racial characteristics, doesn't describe racial characteristics, but ideological proclivities, according to people who describe it, except when it describes racial characteristics. It's a really malleable philosophy, and what it essentially does is articulate a logic for bigotry that is just academic enough to make it seem like it's not abject racism. But then occasionally somebody who is steeped in these ideas, like Representative Cohen, comes along and exposes it for what it is. <laughs> and uh, will uh, Representative Cohen and um, his colleagues, whether in the Academy or just uh, in the House Democrat Caucus, are they um, advancing the stated goal of healing the nation that I continue to hear so much about? I don't imagine how this does much healing at all. Um, look, the, the threat is real. As I said before, this is not an exaggerated threat as we understand it today. We may look on this retrospectively in a couple of months or even a year and say, well, maybe we, over, we overreacted. But the events on January 6th were seminal, and they were traumatic. And I understand the desire to engage in some overreach here because the threat is profound, and it was, it was scary, and we should accept that it was scary. But there's nothing, obviously, that would relieve the kind of tensions that we're seeing here when you have members of Congress literally vilifying a majority of the population because of their skin color. And as though that is some sort of an enlightened and informed position, the only way you get there, the only way you have – you would say something like that as he said it without any self-consciousness, without any fear of professional consequences, is because this idea has been mainstreamed by center-left academics, by center-left political figures, um, as though it's a legitimate idea. And it doesn't, you don't have to scratch the surface before you get down to you know, the, the obvious contradictions within it, which any superstition is exposed as once you examine it too, too closely. It's, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a species of any other sort of racial paranoia of the sort that the left has no problem recognizing when we're talking about minority populations, but it is a mirror image and it is just as pernicious. No, of 125 arrested, you had some 
boogaloo boys, some proud boys, some real far right extremists, some Antifa BLM number BLM members, not not a lot by any means. But do you think President Trump, by the speech that he delivered or what he's been posting on social media or maybe what he's been saying the past four years, motivated those people to storm the Capitol? I do. And I've said as much in my book. Um, This is this is a phenomenon that didn't appear yesterday. Um, The violence that we've been seeing in the streets, both from left and right extremists, is a phenomenon that began uh, in early 2016. And it began in part because Donald Trump incentivized it. Donald Trump fantasized about having his people beat up counter protesters and demonstrations when somebody did he said that he would pay the legal fees of that individual we have been been through four years now where he has um lionized people who engaged in violence governor gianforte for example he called on people to to mobilize in the streets to generate counter demonstrations against blm protesters in the spring which isn't the rule of law it's just muscle and that's the sort of thing that was irresponsible and this is what you get from it the problem is, is that you can't excise one violent aspect of a political coalition without expurgating the other. The violence on both sides legitimizes itself. They feed on each other. They justify each other's actions based on what the other guy does, and they, and they show up in the streets to counter-protest against each other. They're two sides of the same coin, and you've got to get rid of the coin. You can't get rid of other and, at one and say, okay, well, the threat has been, has been excised. It, did Donald Trump incept this phenomenon in American political life? No, he did not. Did he exacerbate those tensions? Yes, he did. Will they go away when he's gone? No, they will not. This is the sort of thing that needs to be addressed from the root, and it needs to be addressed comprehensively, and neither coalition seems particularly interested in addressing the violence on their side. Well, I'm not sure about that. I, I mean, um, I'm happy to address, I mean, and I think most conservatives are. If you've see, we've seen anything in terms of the fallout and the uh, public opinion with respect to what happened on January 6th, we've seen that conservatives like uh, us here on this show are are just as appalled and opposed to that sort of uh, violence that occurred at the Capitol as we are the violence that occurred on the streets of America's cities last summer. That is not a position that is adopted by the left. In point of fact, they can't even bring themselves to uh, to talk in real time about uh, uh, rioting and violence that's still being generated by Antifa in Portland, in San Diego, in New York. Yesterday, on the occasion of the observance of Martin Luther King's life and times, you had, uh, what, a dozen arrests in New York City by Black Lives Matter types who can't apparently assemble peacefully. Well, 11 police officers were injured. So the the, the point is... That across the board, conservatives are denouncing violence and say, we want to live in a peaceful, pluralist society. We'll stand up to thuggery, but we don't use political violence preemptorily. That is not legitimate. You know, protest ends with civil disobedience in this country, a la King. Um, and the left is not of that attitude. So it seems to me there's a real disconnect, but there is a real consistency with respect to most conservatives about what we saw on the 6th and what we saw last year and continues into this year in America's streets. Well, I think you can make a case for that. It's a case that I tend to agree with. Nevertheless, I do think the effort to shift blame away from the president for the conditions that he incepted, that he created on that day in which he spent days on Twitter trying to create this this crowd and threaten the Senate with a crowd like he's literally like he's Mark Antony after Julius Caesar's assassination. I am the guy with the mob and they won't stand for this. And then 
directing them towards the Capitol and setting them loose and then being shocked by the, by the events that followed, there is an effort, according to polling at least, among Republicans, Republican leaners, and conservatives in the general population to absolve the president of any responsibility for that condition. And I think it's blame shifting. I don't think that's addressing the conditions that we're, that we're living with now. And if they're in a forthright fashion, one that is um, a little uncomfortable. Well, well, there, uh, and there, that's not going to, and that's not going to re- resolve the conditions that we're dealing with now. There is something there though, too, no, with respect to the words that Trump used on that day, I'm separating this from his lethargy and responding to when the violence unfolded, but but the words he used in the day go over to the Capitol. We're going to cheer the people that support us and we're going to not cheer the people that don't. And we're going to peacefully and he used that word peacefully, uh, you know, represent ourselves. Um, so, you know, in on the one hand, you have a lot of people that have said, you know, the President Trump needs to be held accountable for the words he uses over the last four years when he you know, speaks off the cuff and he speaks imprecisely and he um, speaks ham handedly. And on the other hand, he doesn't get held accountable for the words he actually used in that speech that supposedly incited a mob. Yeah, and I I have little sympathy for that argument, and I'll tell you why. And I'll use the Georgia example, for example, because people will say, you know what? The Georgia Senate races weren't lost because of him. He literally told people to go vote. Yeah, he did in a perfunctory fashion once after spending two months saying that the people you were supposed to go for had cheated him out of an election and that you need to take some sort of revenge. Now, guess what? It turns out that maybe 10, 15 percent of reliable Republican voters, particularly in very conservative districts like Marjorie Taylor Greene, didn't turn out. Cost Republicans the Senate. Yeah, Trump told them to go vote. But a small portion of those people also heard the context within those remarks were made and drew the conclusions that any person with the commonality of the English language would understand. They didn't have to overcome this kind of the doubt that he was sowing subconsciously and consciously in his voters. So, no. I don't think that's a compelling rationale. I think everybody understood what he was saying, even though literally once in a while he gave himself a little out that he could point to. But the totality of his remarks pointed in one direction and one direction only. That that starts from a premise that I find troublesome, which is that, you know, 70 million people or three million people, five million people in Georgia are just uh, mindless automatons. And they go in whichever direction Trump is uh, saying you should go or hinting you should go. And I just don't think that's the case, even 10 to 15 percent of them. I mean, you know, the, the, that same 10 to 15 percent could have come to that conclusion themselves. We had a lot of callers on this show after the election that basically said, I'm never voting again. It had nothing to do with Georgia or any pronouncement by Trump on Georgia. You had obviously you had uh, Lynn Wood losing his mind down there, but uh, clearly having an audience, Sidney Powell sort of aiding and abetting him. I mean, it's hard to all this stuff is visited upon Trump's doors. And I'm not like this is not some knee jerk defense. I just don't think that the narrative really captures all the variables. And I think it starts from faulty premises like uh, everybody is sitting waiting for, you know, the high sign explicitly or implicitly from Trump in terms of what they're going to do or not do in a particular election or on a particular day at a particular rally. I mean, it's an unfalsifiable premise, sure. Nevertheless, I do think it's kind of difficult to imagine that which happened happening in the absence of Donald Trump saying that everybody in, in, from the Republican governor to the Republican secretary of state is aligned against you in a cabal conspiring against your interests to undermine an election that's going to be invalid anyway. But please go vote. Well, but I the think Lopper, that, that, the notion yeah. that, that, that that is just ignored by these voters it strikes me as suspect, too. I really think Loeffler and Purdue lost because of insider trading and the fact that the Democrats were campaigning going door to door. This is what I heard from somebody who lives in Georgia. 
And they're saying if you vote for these two Democratic Senate candidates, you're going to get $2,000. Doesn't that sound good? So go and vote. Well, and and nevertheless, though, a Republican oh, candidate said won statewide by 42,000 votes. I mean, he still managed to make to a, a convincing statewide election victory, suggesting that these people crossed over, or at least that a lot of these voters who, who uh, were unwilling to cast ballot for the Senate race turned out. So you did have uh, at least a, a fair amount of Republican voters who didn't turn out for the Senate that turned out anyway for a Republican statewide, which suggests a Republican can win statewide, even with that electorate. Uh, I want to move past Georgia, and since we're we're so focused on Trump, and the left was so focused on Trump for four years, they wanted him to go, and now they don't want him to go. They want him to you know, face a, a Senate impeachment trial, of course. Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton agree that there should be some sort of 9-11-style commission to reinvestigate the reinvestigation of the reinvestigation of the Russian collusion allegations. Uh, they want to keep him around just as long as they can. Well, that's insane. I can't imagine that there, there's a single detail about the, the past four years involving Russia that we don't know. I do think that there's room for a, a bipartisan blue ribbon commission, what have you, to investigate the events of the six. There are just far too many details that are blurry and who is where. And we don't know a lot of this information. And what we're getting from press reports is really kind of damning and needs to be definitively proven. I don't think that the press reports are sufficient. In that regard, and, I, and, I, and I, we, we know now that there's a, a tendency in this political culture now to indulge conspiratorial thinking, and we can't allow that to fester. Nevertheless, it's pretty clear that the Trump administration ends, but the Trump presidency does not, if only insofar as the fact that we get a Senate trial involving impeachment. So the president will be a part of our political culture even after he's out of office. And I don't think that's in anybody's, anybody really has a problem with that. Democrats have a political incentive, even if they genuinely want to move on from this moment, have a political imperative to tether Republican lawmakers to Trump for as long as they can. Just look at his poll numbers. He's unpopular. So they have to tie him to them. Republicans don't have an incentive to get rid of Trump because Trump motivates their base, animates their base. He's the most important, most popular, rather, figure in the Republican Party. The media is not going to let go of him because he's a ratings bonanza. And Trump himself doesn't want to go anywhere. So Trump isn't going anywhere. All right. Uh, so he'll get he'll, he'll so get a second <laughs> he'll get a second term in shadow format. He'll be around for at least another four years. Uh, Noah Rothman, associate editor for Commentary Magazine, author of Unjust: Social Justice and the Unmaking of America. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today.